Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Sean Whitesell, Matt Groves, and Rob Richardson. Sean is the Microsoft MVP, ASP Insider, Technical Reviewer, and Cloud Architect at TokenX. Matt is the Microsoft MVP, a guy who loves to code and get involved in the developer community. And Rob is a Microsoft MVP, Docker captain, and a friend of Redgate. Welcome, Sean. Hey, John. Good to be here. Hi, Rob. Hi. Great to be here. Welcome, Matt. Hey, John and John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad you're all able to join us this evening. Uh, we've all we've had each of you on separately in in the past. Uh, Matt, most recently, as of uh, our previous episode recording. Uh, so, welcome back. Wanted to see if maybe anything has changed in recent months. Uh, if you've get, been working on anything new, or, or maybe just tell us what you're working on these days. So let's see. The last time I was here with you guys talking about microservices, and the main talk that I had regarding microservice conference talk on microservices came from the uh, first chapter of my book that we just got out. And myself and uh, Matt and Rob are co-authors of, of the book with me on uh, promicroservices.net6. So we finally got that book out, and we're uh, happy as a clam to, to have it out and available and uh, to get other, any, anybody else reading it. So, Rob, what about you? Anything new these days? With this book, I got to wander into open telemetry, which was really fun. I hadn't done that yet, and so it was really fun to explore the different ways of logging and metrics and tracing and and so it was it was fun. I still do a whole lot with containers. And so when the time comes, we can definitely dive back in there. But for this book, actually, Matt was the one that did containers. It was really cool. Yeah. And so last but not least, Matt, you're the most recent guest that we had on from the three of you. Yeah. Has anything changed in a week? Let's see. Uh, no, we talked about databases a lot last time. Uh, but yeah, as Rob said, I spent a lot of time talking about containers, Docker, Kubernetes, and so on. Um, which, you know, I learned a lot of that from working with databases inside of Kubernetes. So I think that's one of the reasons that, that Sean tapped me for that chapter. So uh, I'll talk less about databases this time and more about containerization. Excellent, excellent. And so, Sean, you mentioned that at least chapter one came out of a conference talk. So you want, is, is that the catalyst for the entire book or, or why write a book uh, these days? So why write a book? That's, that's actually a, a good question because, um, one, I... I I've been wanting to write a book for nearly two decades. And my thought for the longest time was I want to be, I want to be that person that is capable of having content that's worthy of being in a book. And I didn't want to just write out as much crap as I could. I, I want it to be extremely meaningful. The opportunity came up. I had done some uh, been a tech reviewer of a press on three different books. And so I was able, I got an opportunity to, to write a book on microservices and so you know, I'm going to jump on this chance. I had been doing some microservices. I've been working with Azure Kubernetes service as well and .NET and .NET core. 
uh, doing a lot of transitions of things. And so I was like, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity and, and get after it. I did not realize the size of the elephant that I had agreed to chew on. And so this book has been both a, an extremely uh, amazing learning journey for me, uh, as well as an opportunity to share my knowledge on things. So it, it became not just a personal goal just to have it written, but this such a, an amazing growth opportunity as well. And when I started doing a lot of research and I put together the first chapter, then I had an opportunity to, uh, you know, speak at a conference. So I put together a talk based on the first chapter of the book and a lot of the learnings I had from that. And it became, it certainly became my best talk. I well, most well received. I was not expecting that, but I've given that talk in like 25 times in two years. And I'm just super excited about that. Uh, my first conference I had with that, I filled the room and that wasn't because of me. That was simply because the topic, which also proved that developers are hungry for information about microservices and understanding that it's an architecture, how to do, you know, how to get started, but also how to get in and do them well. What are a lot of the pitfalls? What are the warning signs that we need to understand as we're designing and building out these microservices and learning from other companies? I mentioned in the book how Twitter and Amazon and others that they went through these journeys and it was not cheap. It was not easy. Uh, there was times when they would put something out in production just to pull it right back in and redesign it again. So learning from those uh, those lessons and kind of sharing that. And so I mentioned a little bit of that in the book, but that was kind of the premise of, of doing the book is to, uh, understand that it's not so much about programming as it is about architectural design, regardless of the language. The opportunity came about, of course, because we're, we're all three MVPs. Uh, we do a lot with Microsoft and I certainly do my everyday jobs or um, although I'm a cloud architect, any programming language I use is going to be in C sharp. So using leveraging .NET 6 with microservices just became the, the right thing to do uh, for uh, this group of authors and on, on the topic. So things came together. Um, I did get behind a lot on some uh, deadlines. And so I hit up Matt and I hit up Rob and they jumped at the chance. Um, and I'm extremely appreciative of these guys because they helped me get the book out and um and that way because of the .NET 6 going to lts it just got just got released last november so these guys helped me get this project done and i'm 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 extremely grateful one of the things that really appealed to me as i started joining this project was it isn't so much just teaching a technology I'm not going to show you how to use Docker. I'm not even going to show you how to use .NET. But rather, how do we build out these microservices? How do we design the interactions between them? And we'll use some examples in .NET, but we're teaching architectural principles. We're teaching discoverability and connecting these services. So I thought it was a really fun opportunity, and I'm really glad that I got to jump aboard and help with this book. Sean did a great job in, in getting it to the finish line. Maybe to take a little bit of a jump back, we've talked about it a, a little bit, um, for folks who maybe haven't heard some of the previous episodes that we've talked about or have maybe li living under a rock, maybe we start looking at 
some of what microservices are and sort of lay some of that introduction um, to where their benefits are and, um, you know, just sort of laying that groundwork for talking about them. Yeah, so I talk about in the book where, and I gave kind of a walkthrough example, um, I, I kind of use this um, example hypothetical company. They're a, a logistics company. They do short runs uh, called Hot Shots. You know, and uh, <clears throat> you may have a, a, a call that says, hey, we need to go, somebody get this part and we need to take it to this oil field over in this, but it's the next state over. And we're not, we don't have time to wait on UPS or something like that. It's like, you're going to hire a hotshot driver. They're going to go pick up that part and they're going to go get it over there. And so we have this hypothetical logistics company that helps manage a lot of those kinds of, of uh, shipping requests. And it, it's not about the company by any means. It's about the fact that they hit a typical story of we had a, a we had an employee that developed an application for us was here for a little while. Now the employee's gone, but we're hitting walls now. And we're, our, our company has been growing. The demand has been growing, but the software is not able to adapt with us. So they hire uh, this hypothetical software development company. They come in and go, we understand your needs. We're analyzing some things and we're going, okay, some of the best things we're going to do for you right now, just to, to really uh, you know, bring this home is going to be bringing in some microservices. Microservices are not the fix-all by any means. It is a different architectural pattern, and it has its place. And there's going to be times when you may dive in, you're going to learn a lot, you're going to try out that, uh, that architecture and go, this is actually not what we need, and you'll pull things back into a different direction. And that's fine. Just give yourself that time for the exploring and understanding and then decide if that's right uh, in the right direction. So in that, we also discuss a little bit about um, you understanding a little bit about domain driven design and going through a workshop called event storming. So, you know, get the, some of the employees uh, in the room with uh, some of the developers and you're understanding well, how does an order come in? How is that order estimated, right? You know, that, that, uh, how's it quoted and understanding their business processes and understanding their needs, their pitfalls, et cetera. And it helps highlight how things can be fixed and how can it be fixed with a microservice? What is a microservice? Well, it's not about the, the minimal lines of code. It's not about lines of code at all. And it's, it's about a tight focus on a domain and that domain is subject to whatever that applies to that you're trying to solve. And so maybe you do a microservice that's for accounting, for example, and then maybe over time you realize that the amount of functionality is growing. Now we got accounts receivable and accounts payable microservices and they've split and allows them to evolve independently and you treat them and love them as independent applications so that they can evolve independently and have their own demands met and different timelines, etc. So we talk a little bit about that in chapter three of the book. And then we start out with, all right, with this first microservice, we're going to do a direct call. It's going to be a straight call through an IP address, uh, doing an RPC style, that remote procedure call. 
And so the code in the chapter four is about writing that remote procedure call type microservice, that direct call, as well as doing gRPC. So we do an example there. Chapter five, we talk about microservices communicating by messaging. So we talk about you bringing in mass transit, sitting on top of RabbitMQ, just to, to help lay in a very quick and easy uh, example to get started. Literally, file new project. And I love that. I, I put that as one of the section titles, file new project. And you start coding and you have a working example by the time you're done on all of these samples. So then we talk about decentralizing data which is an extremely hard topic. In fact, uh, you know, I put, it's a chapter here, but it's a well-deserving of at least a book to itself. There's just so much there to it. But we talk about decentralizing data. We talk about understanding uh, distributed transactions. What does that really mean? And how do you accomplish uh, transactions that across multiple microservices, even if those different microservices are done in different languages? talk about a few patterns in there as well. Then we talk about testing these microservices. If you're doing the RPC style, here's how we can test that using a, a library called Pactnet. Um, if you're going to do the microservices with messaging, we talk about testing that using the, micro, the mass transit testing library. And again, it's code. You get to step right through that and see working examples of that. And then we get to chapter eight and we talk about deploying things and how are we going to containerize them with uh, Docker and then hosting them on Azure Kubernetes service. And, uh, and Matt does a great job of walking you through a lot of those and giving you example commands and helping you better understanding that environment. And then we check, well, how do you know it's healthy? And this is a big discussion in itself as well. How do you know that your architecture is healthy? So Rob has done a fantastic job of bringing in open telemetry and tracing and logging type topics to help you better understand that architecture. So this book is a just a broad stroke of over that architecture to help cover many, many bases of that to help get the reader started in and hopefully in a great direction and a good perspective on on how to do them well. I love that. As we look at microservice, we usually start counting lines of code, and it really has nothing to do with it. It's about identifying the problem set and about filling that need in a self-contained way. The beauty of a microservice is if we decide later that it's too big or too small, splitting that apart or combining microservices together is definitely a feasible task. And given containers and service discovery, we can make that change and update our application our project to be able to use these different services in different ways. Yeah. And that's, that's what I think sometimes we forget that we are writing software. It's soft. We can change it. We can modify it. We can, we can tear it down. We can rebuild it. We can redeploy it. We can reimagine it. I, I find a, that oftentimes there's a lot of problems that occur when we don't take the time to really think about our domain problems and figure out where the logical separations need to belong or figuring out that our first draft, our second draft, what might have been even incorrect as we understood it at, at that time. And maybe we don't take enough time or due diligence to go back and correct those problems as we learn and grow. 
do you, do you address any of these types of concerns on how to be better at defining your domain models and your separations and your service boundaries and things like that? I would say not in a great detail, but we do touch on it. And when we talk about domain driven design, we talk about what is a bounded context and, um, we kind of give uh, some examples on that. It's not a concrete answer and it's, it's more of uh, the approach and how you apply that to your code and the functionality that is provided by that. You may even, and, and you kind of really should do this as you're trying to design this out and you're putting your, your functionality there, et cetera. And you may say, okay, this is my bounded context. And then as you're going that direction towards a microservice and you're going, wait a second, actually, I didn't see it at this time, but now I can look back at this and go, we're actually violating some things. And that's okay. That's part of that learning and that evolution of things. So now you may have to split those into two different bounded contexts, for example. Now, here's something else. I've, and I've heard this question before. Um, does a microservice have only one bounded context? And the answer is no, there's no restriction there. The bounded context is that that grouping of common functionality that needs to evolve together. But a microservice can have multiple bounded context provided that they are not uh, really colluding against each other and causing other uh, coupling issues and things like that. So there, and there's a variety of reasons why you may want to split them out. And maybe typically you do have a microservice with one bounded context. It's okay. It's just not a rule. And um, as well, then we talk about like other kind of bounded context. What about a bounded context that is uh, shared across multiple, uh, multiple microservices? That's wrong. You don't want to do that. Now, the only case that you will is when that bounded context has no business logic, but it has the cross-cutting concerns type things in there. Like I want to have use a common logging library, for example. Then it's not business logic. It's spread across all microservices or a, maybe a handful, however you're going to do it. Maybe all the ones that are C-sharp, they're going to use this library over here. Hopefully that helps answer that question. Yeah, we do touch on that a little bit. And as I start refactoring my application into microservices, um, I like the analogy of moving from spaghetti to lasagna. We moved from spaghetti code to lasagna code where we had an N-tier architecture. And so now we're thinking microservices and we're like, okay, so let me take this layer of lasagna and this layer of lasagna. And we end up really crafting our microservices the wrong way. Our back end and our front end aren't the microservices that we want. We want vertical slices across our entire domain. We want to be able to take that bounded context, that portion of our business problem, and focus in on that. And so I like carrying this analogy a little further. I like uh, how we kind of now have moved towards ravioli architecture. We have these little pieces that we can combine in interesting ways. The goal is still to you know eat the pasta. But we've now have little pieces of ravioli uh, that we can orchestrate in different ways and combine in unique ways. And each piece of ravioli solves a particular problem. And so now we're going to stack these pieces of ravioli together to build up our application in total. I don't know if that worked to help me understand, but I'm definitely hungry now. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, if you think about it, it's you got it's pasta and you got different varieties of of how it's prepared, right? 
and and you can think of it as uh, well, like with Mexican food, and you got a taco or a tostada. Well, it's kind of the same thing. It's just how it's prepared. And the thing about microservices as it relates to code is how do you prepare that code so that it can be in a microservice versus in a monolith. And so it's how do you want to uh, approach this and how is this the end result packaged? Mm -hmm. No, I think that that's excellent. That makes a lot of sense. You mentioned a chapter on messaging and mass transit. Would would you kind of go more into that? Yeah, sure. Um, So we talk about there's different styles of messaging communication. And for example, you may have a pub sub model where it's, uh, I have a single message, but I need to fire this off and it's going to get across to one or more microservices. They might, uh, you know, an order may be placed and an order comes in. And so we have this order created event. So we have this messaging that's sent as a result of it, but I might have one or more different microservices that need to react independently of that fact of that event. So maybe accounting is, you know, needs to be aware of it. Maybe shipping needs to be aware of it because there's some things that they need to do independently that has nothing to do with any other uh, department, for example. You can kind of see how there's some analogies with the microservices that kind of to an, uh, a department, for example, but I'm just trying to help um, with a broad analogy. So accounting may need to do some preparing uh, for the financial transactions and because uh, maybe that order that came in is not just a spoon for a few dollars. Maybe it's a multi-thousand dollar order that just came in, right? And there's going to be a lot more to that. Maybe shipping is involved with getting a, uh, a flatbed truck on, you know, on order. So it's going to arrive at the time to get this thing shipped out. And there's other logistics involved. So as they uh, operate as independent circles, they're going to need to be able to react to that event. So PubSub is a messaging model that helps with that. There's others where maybe I'm going to have this, um, it, it could be up from the monolith. You, you know, when you go to a microservices architecture, you don't have to get rid of a monolith that that's where you're coming from. You might have a monolith and maybe one microservice. That's fine. So something may kick off a message that's meant for one microservice to receive that. And now in that case, it's not so much of a, a pub sub model, but you're going to have that producer and consumer and then well, if I've got multiple consumers, uh, in, multiple instances of a microservice that happens to be listening in, you want the um, uh, competing consumers so that if something's coming in, I only have one that's reacting to that. One that's going to say, I'm going to add this to the log file and note this entry, et cetera, and not multiple instances reacting to that same thing. So we talk about competing consumers as well. So hopefully that helped there, but we do talk about different type of messaging models in that chapter. The cool part about publishing events in this way is in our monolith, we had to wait for the UI thread to go call into all these services and do all the things. So the user was just waiting, sitting there with a spinning page or a spinning screen. If I can publish events, then those events could happen in a second, in 10 seconds, tomorrow, eventually. And so we learn about eventual consistency the methodology of being able to publish an event and later will consume that event and take action. Uh, A great example is when I'm 
buying something on Amazon or when I'm buying a plane ticket, I'll hit the buy button, but then later they'll send me the email that says my ticket has been purchased. I'm not sitting there waiting until it purchases my credit card, stuffs the box, pushes it through the mail. Uh, That would take a really long time. So we publish these events and they get consumed whenever we need to. That boundary between publisher and consumer is a really elegant seam to be able to create different microservices. That's, that's where the architecture has explained to us that this is a natural fit for those services to grow apart. And that makes looser coupling, which makes better design services. Eventual consistent services are really elegant. Yeah, but it, it takes a different mindset at that point, right? If, if you're used to your monolith where you can call, save on an entity and it goes into the database and the next time you request that particular entity, you, you see that your updates have been made and then you move to a microservices architecture with eventual consistency, with messaging in place, and, and you have fired off an event and then you go and expect that the eventing to have happened and everything to be in place you're you're going to you're going to be in for a surprise. Yeah, and that's where eventual consistency is definitely a tool, it's not the magic hammer. Um if I want to update my address, I do want to be able to push refresh on the page and see that my new address is there. If I add a new credit card number, I want to see in the UI that that new credit card has been added. But if I place an order, I don't need to see that the order showed up at my doorstep before the page will reload. And so understanding the wisdom there and being able to choose the correct consistency model for that application is really key. Perhaps within a particular microservice, I need to have deterministic consistency. I need that asset compliance. But between microservices, maybe eventual consistency is appropriate. Yeah, and even in your example there, if if I'm updating my credit card in my account on the, the webpage, maybe that's a concern of that particular model that has that has ownership of that data and it can fire off additional events or something to other pieces of the broader application landscape that cares about those events. So so what about containerization? Is Ash is is our Kubernetes expert on on the podcast. Uh, I know enough to be dangerous and Clayton usually sticks with Docker and Docker Compose and avoiding Kubernetes at all costs. Um, and Rob was kind enough to to join us on a, a live stream uh, in live coding and help us walk through some Kubernetes concerns in, in some of our sample applications. So I know he's got a, a, a great deal of expertise on that. But I think, Matt, you wrote the chapter on containerization, and you might be able to tell us why Docker if Docker for microservices, must microservices be Docker or Kubernetes or some flavor of containerization? Yeah, I, I start the chapter, uh, early on the chapter, making the point that containers and microservices can be very complementary, but you do not need to use a any particular tool to build microservices. You know, to Sean's point, it is very much a architecture. It's a, it's a way you design things. It's a way you model things. It's not any particular tool. But that being said, uh, I do cover Docker, Docker Compose, and Kubernetes, and Kubernetes with AKS specifically, in this chapter, and I'll talk about some of the benefits uh, that they bring to a microservices architecture. So, uh, as and to tap onto that, when we talk about a microservice, 
we may have not, you, you don't want to just have one instance of that microservice because that's not really highly available and resilient. So you're going to want multiple instances of that uh, microservice. But then if I've got multiple instances of microservices A, how many do I need? What about microservice B? How many of those instances do I need? What kind of resources do they need? How much CPU, RAM? What about uh, network IO? So with uh, uh, with Matthew's chapter on on uh, Kubernetes, kind of touching on that, and gives you that option of scaling and your choice of those agent nodes, so that you provide the right power to the right microservices, and that's part of that we're that independently uh, evolving type thing, is so that they can be resilient and powerful independently. That is that is really one of the key benefits of using Kubernetes with a microservice environment is, uh, you know, one of the benefits of microservices is that these services are independent, so I can scale them independently. Whereas in a monolith, if it's the uh, catalog portion of the monolith that's uh, consuming a lot of resources, I have to scale the whole thing, catalog, user profile, uh, authorization, everything. I have to scale the whole thing, whether it needs it or not. In a microservice, I can scale out or up just the parts that are you know need that increased uh, ops or uh, RAM or processor or whatever? And with Kubernetes, uh, it's very very simple to declaratively say, "Oh, I just I want five pods of this running." Uh, and you can even get more advanced techniques, which I don't cover much in this book. But I do mention them of auto scaling, where it's if we've reached eighty percent capacity, add another pod, that sort of thing. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons why Kubernetes has caught on a lot in microservices architectures is it it's uh, a declarative way of building out that uh, scaling definition and and also just organizing uh you know what could potentially be many microservices right if we're talking two or three you know kubernetes may not benefit you all that much but if you're getting to you know more than that uh, being able to control them via uh, you know, just a, a declarative yaml file uh, that you can check in the source control and collaborate on becomes very, very helpful. Yeah. How do you determine, or are there certain things to keep in mind when you're determining the the size and quantity or, or structure of your cluster of container images or, or uh, pods in a AKS instance? Like what are the things that are available to us or that we should be looking at to, be able to at least have a foundational knowledge and and starting point of we we know that we need five instances of the image service or something to that effect. I, I think it's probably a good idea to go into Kubernetes and and design your services in such a way that they can uh, exist side by side, so they can you know if you have ASP.NET, you can uh, add two or three of them behind a load balancer, for instance. Uh, if you have a database needs to scale horizontally, you can uh, manage that with the operator. But I, I think actually determining if you're meeting the needs of you know your users and your system that is more in the realm of the um, the checking if your service is healthy or not, the monitoring, uh, which is also a, a very uh, beneficial reason to use Kubernetes. It gives you a more unified monitoring system. Um, but of course, with that monitoring, uh, the flip side of that is um, one of the main criticisms of microservices is that, um, you know, if I had a monolith, 
uh, making a call to another part of the system is a is a function call, a method call, and I can set a breakpoint and just and see that and trace it the whole way. Whereas with microservices, uh, it's a not really a function call; it's a HTTP call or a, some sort of network call, and that is much more difficult to run a breakpoint through. So that's the the chapter uh, later that talks about health and performance and monitoring. Well, that's a, a good segue into health and performance and monitoring. So appreciate that. So what are we, what tools do we have available or what should we plan on implementing ourselves or capturing in, in, in logging and metrics and analysis and whatever, what, what do we, what do we not know yet that you haven't told us? What's really cool about monitoring and tracing and logging is it does break into those three pieces. Generally, when we talk about logging, we kind of umbrella over all of them in the same way that we, when we talk about testing, we're probably talking about unit testing and integration testing and acceptance testing and performance testing, but we kind of generally loop that under the term unit testing. Similarly, we talk about logging to mean all of these different pieces. But breaking them apart into logging and tracing and metrics, we can see kind of three different perspectives on this piece. A log will generally be a point in time, and it'll be a really deep dive into that. We'll see stack traces, we'll see date and time, we'll see perhaps HTTP headers, maybe HTTP body, maybe function call parameters. We'll kind of see all of the details, but it's only that one point in time. By comparison, tracing allows us to walk a particular call through all of the different microservices, through all of the different function calls. With each trace, we attach to the parent activity ID and create a new activity ID for our current thing. And then as we spawn additional concerns, then we spawn new activities using our parent activity ID. Now, this is better than a correlation ID, where a correlation ID would flow through our entire system and it wouldn't change. Well, what happens if I spawn two different requests? Well, they would both end up with the same correlation ID and I would no longer be able to keep those things apart. By comparison with tracing, when I attached my um, parent activity ID, then I now have this universal mechanism of being able to keep track of the function calls and the duration of each. And then there's metrics, where metrics starts talking about quantity per time frame. How many calls did I get per second? How many HTTP 500 errors did I do in comparison to successful calls? And so we can see from metrics these types of accumulations over time. What we do really well in the book after we've identified those three sections is we kind of go through three different methodologies for solving it. When we're looking at logging, we can take a look at adding Serilog from uh, NuGet. And Serilog is a really great way to be able to take logs and to push them to other systems. Maybe I want to push that to an Elk stack. Maybe I want to push it out to my Kubernetes logging framework of choice. And so Serilog allows us to direct those logs in different places. Metrics is really interesting in that metrics um, is built into ASP.NET. And so I can kind of just turn it on and be able to collect those things. We can uh, choose to uh, pull in Prometheus, and Prometheus allows us to harvest those metrics and push them to interesting places as well. So we'll see a mechanism of being able to pull in Prometheus metrics. And then with tracing, we have a third methodology where we pull in OpenTelemetry. OpenTelemetry is a new project, but it's getting a whole lot of market adoption. Um, 
we've got a lot of different systems, not just Microsoft systems, but all kinds of different programming languages that want to adopt kind of a common framework for logging, tracing, and metrics. Right now, they've been focusing on tracing. And so we pull in OpenTelemetry into our ASP.NET services and allow us to be able to consume services that would list a parent activity ID and publish that activity ID with HTTP web requests or with entity framework calls to be able to let downstream systems continue on with that mechanism. And so we get to see the built-in stuff inside of ASP.NET. We get to see consuming NuGet packages, and we also get to see some up-and-coming systems where in time we may be just talking about how open telemetry has taken over the world. But for now, we can leverage the pieces that make sense to grab logging and tracing and metrics, and each of them will give us a different perspective. Perhaps we're looking at a dashboard where we're seeing our metrics and we say, you know, the exception count is higher than I would expect. Okay, let's dig into our logs and see what we find. Oh, look, here's a bunch of logs with stack traces that look ugly. Well, how did this come to be? So we'll, part we'll choose a particular log and we'll flip over to tracing. Well, this HTTP error talks about how the parameters passed to us are invalid and that's why the system threw a 500 error. Well, what called us? Oh, look, it's this other microservice that isn't validating the data correctly. And so it passed on invalid data into our system. We were able to use each of these three pieces to identify that thing and to be able to tell that story in a really elegant way to tie down exactly what we needed to correct. How much is it important to include all three of these? In very small systems, maybe logging is completely sufficient because we don't have the horsepower or bandwidth to be able to need that level of detail. But in larger systems or where we have a lot of microservices, having all three together with a Grafana dashboard or a Jaeger dashboard to view Prometheus or Traces respectively may give us a lot of insight to be able to dig in more deeply into that particular topic. I think um, the being able to break those out really is really eye-opening. And uh, I, I think I would love to hear more about tracing uh, specifically because I feel like what I see is most people coming from a monolithic background you you know the order of operations you know you know like where where the code is it's all in there we can sort of stack through and what we end up doing is using logging for tracing which is probably not the right thing the right move but when you start spreading this out into all these different systems it becomes way too complicated to use logging as tracing right that's like it's a more complex and so we can't get away with that crutch but that's the crutch that we're really familiar with and so it becomes very difficult for us to build visible systems and so how does like tools like open telemetry like work with uh, either themselves or other tools to actually be able to visualize and view that tracing easy or consume that that tracing uh i'm gonna point i want to point out a really interesting detail on that and then i'm gonna hand it over to you rob when, when we're talking about monolith and that is a different architectural pattern, it just happens to be the one we're most uh, comfortable with. And, and certainly for me, I've grown up with that, right? And, and learning all these different architectural type of patterns, et cetera, out there, there is a mind shift that has to take place when we go from a monolith to a microservices architecture, even if it's a hybrid, that mind shift is now we're going to a distributed computing model right so we're going to spread our computational needs out how do we 
connect and keep sense of these things that are now distributed. That is a key piece of the um, of, of Rob's chapter in that. So I, I just want to point that out. And I, I know where he's going to go with this. And I just want to point that out. It's a different mindset and you've got to be willing to attack it in a different mindset. You cannot do distributed architecture thinking like a monolith. So once you once you're at least going that direction, then the tools that Rob's going to talk about is going to, it will be a little easier to uh, adopt, right? And to when you get into your mind and, and, and how you're going to connect the dots with that. Rob, take it. Yeah, exactly. Um, when we start to misuse uh, logging as tracing, you know, we have the stack trace. Isn't that tracing? Well, yeah, but what if the stack trace ends in an HTTP call going to somewhere else. Now we've lost that continuity. We're in a distributed system and we need to be able to keep track of those parameters passed between systems, the timing between systems. You know, okay, so I open up the other microservices log and I look at their logging. How do I know which request got from here to there? Um, I'm, I'm trying to find the needle in the haystack on both sides of the haystack and that's kind of hard. What I love about the open tracing implementation in .NET is that they've really hooked into the base classes that have existed in .NET forever. <laughs> we have activity. Now in open telemetry, we talk about spans, a span of work, a span of um, time in compute. And uh, because in .NET, they implemented them as activities and activities have existed forever, then we get a really elegant mechanism that may be more backwards compatible than otherwise uh, would be created in a system such like this. So we have open telemetry that gives us that ability to create these activities. And the beauty here is when we reach into open telemetry to say, get me a new span or in .NET terms, a new activity, if nobody's listening, if there is no parent activity ID, there's no need to log this at all. So the object that we'll get back is null and we'll do all the things with you know nullable uh, we'll put the question mark at the end of the method call and or the object reference and and then end up doing nothing so it doesn't impact the performance of our system if the logs if the in this case the traces are going nowhere but if we did get a parent activity id maybe that came in on the incoming http request maybe in asp.net we told it to rig up activities in this particular thing then we'll be able to get that new um, in open telemetry terms span in .NET terms, this new activity. And then as we spawn additional things, we can hook into HTTP client, we can hook into entity framework, and those will automatically discover the current activity ID, use that as their parent activity ID and be able to spit out these logs. Now, the cool thing is they come out in Zipkin format and we can just easily hook that into Jaeger. So in our app settings.config or in the environment variables that we inject into our container, we can say, here's where that Zipkin or Jaeger instance is. And I would like you to publish these out in that way. And at that point, then it collects all these activities. It publishes them to there. And then I open up Jaeger and I just go pick a particular thing. It will show me all of the things that called it. It will show me all the things that it called, the timings involved. And it is just amazing. It's hard to do justice to it in audio, but I just have a graph of all of the function calls and all the things that, and I can click on one and it'll tell me about that particular thing. And maybe that gives me the details that I need to be able to now go 
deeper in that in the logs to be able to get that deep dive about that particular event. But I can take a look at this graph and I can go, okay, I'm trying to speed up this act, this action. Well, um, this isn't the thing that's taking up the time. It calls into the other thing that's taking up all of the time. Or, you know, perhaps I am the one that's taking up all the time. And so how do I tighten down my loop to be able to see it? Um, the cool part about Jaeger is you can then hook Jaeger to, uh, as you're watching all of these traces coming in from all of the systems, you can flip over to a view that allows you to start to chart the dependencies between your applications. And what I love about this view is that it isn't an architectural diagram that a developer created in their mind. It's viewing the system making the calls to various functions. It is beautiful. It's what's actually happening. And what's really cool about what's actually happening is we can take a look at that, compare it to the developer's mental model of what the system could have been and say, hey, I think you left that um, debug config in and we're not using the actual config service. Look, there are no calls to it. And that's where these traces can be really elegant, both from a debugging standpoint, but also just understanding system health. You know, and on top of that, when we talk about logging and capturing that information, like the parent caller, what if that parent caller is an instance of a microservice that died? And when we do a microservices instances, we need to think of them as being ephemeral. They may live, they, I mean, it could be serverless. What if you're doing an AWS Lambda or an Azure function, they spin up, they do their job and then they die off. They're ephemeral. So that parent may actually be an instance of code that existed for a time and did its job and make that call. So now you don't necessarily have an instance ID. You have a parent that is also to a version of the code that ran. So this allows you to capture some of those details and go, well, if the caller had the problem and is passing this down, then you may also want to capture the version of your code as well as the other details. So then you can also see the evolution of your code in each of the microservices. And did we have a problem in version X? Did it get fixed in version Y, et cetera? So there, when we talk about distributed architecture like this, there's extra details to consider, not just the communication patterns, not just uh, spreading out a database transaction type thing. Those you have to consider them. But even details as far as what version of code are you running on the instance? And then to Matt's uh, chapter with Kubernetes, maybe if I'm going to have ephemeral microservices and I got one that died off because maybe uh, it didn't garbage collect and now I have a memory problem and, it, and, it, and Kubernetes killed it off. The great thing about Kubernetes, right, is that you, if you go below the minimum, it's going to spin up another one within seconds and you don't get a phone call at 2 a.m. going, we're, you know, things aren't running. We're not, we're not at capacity. Kubernetes can help with that as well. So even those details have to be considered. So one of the things we, we jumped over a little bit is decentralizing the data. And I think this, you, we talked about like the shifting mindset you have to make when you're moving to a distributed architecture. Can you guys kind of begin to dig into this topic a little bit more? We've we've talked about like um, uh, domain domain driven design and like how an order might be different for 
the you know accounting group versus the shipping group and but there's still an order but how do we handle the data that each one of them needs and then maybe even more importantly how do we handle the data that they both need so yeah and and that is a big topic and when i first learned about this this so-called rule that if if a a microservice must have its own database and I challenge that. I'm like, okay, no, I, I mean, I've dealt grown up with SQL server and you're going to have a single system. You're not going to spread multiple databases just for the sake of the fact that you have a microservice. That doesn't make sense to me. So as I dug in a little bit more with this, um, one, I've tweaked that rule just slightly. So it's simply this, if a microservice is responsible for persisting data, then you should look at having its own database. And here's why. Why do you have code that is separate from other code? Well, you at some point you said, I need these to evolve independently. If they don't, they're coupled. And so by having them and allowing them that code to evolve independently, you allow them to be, you're breaking that coupling. So now they're maybe loosely coupled or maybe they're just tied together at the business uh, level, the purpose they exist at all, and less of the actual tight coupling. When you get into dealing with data, you have another opportunity for coupling. So if I have... Uh, multiple microservices, maybe it's the monolith and a single microservice or two, whatever. And they're all reading from the same database table, orders table. Okay, reading, you're probably not going to have that much problem. The challenge is if I've got multiple applications that can write data and affect the, the data integrity of what's stored, who's right. Now I've got multiple applications that's fighting to be the, the, the control of that data integrity. So now you have that contention, possible contention at the schema level. Now, does that mean day one, I make a microservice, I'm going to immediately have to go and run out and go split my data? Not necessarily. But know that the opportunity for that data contention at the schema level will come up at some point. And when that does, you're going to want to split that apart because you may find where this application needs to change the schema. We need to add another column. But when we do, maybe that hurts another application that was also dependent on that same table. So that's when you may want to split things out. So now we've got a microservice when it's, uh, it's, uh, it's our orders microservice. Then that orders microservice who's responsible for persisting that data needs to also be the single source of truth and the data integrity maintainer of that data. Then if something needs to affect that data, change it, then they make a request to the microservice and let it be in charge of that data change. But how do you break that apart? That is extremely difficult. Well, so it's like peeling apart the, the code level, right? And you use things like the strangler pattern and, and other things to help understand where it should break apart in code. You're going to apply similar type things in the, at the data level. So I do mention a couple of things like here's some, uh, here's some SQL code assuming you're coming from SQL server or something or a SQL relational base type of uh, database system. 
you know, here, here's some code um, to help understand, uh, go through all your store procedures looking for a table. You know, where, where's your dependencies at? Or look, you know, search your functions looking for a table name, things like that. So there's some codes to help get you started with understanding where your dependencies are together. But we do talk about, well, what if I do have a change that has to go across now multiple systems? And that data is now across multiple microservices or monolith and microservice combination. Now it's multiple databases. So we talk about don't do distributed transactions. And that's there's a different model with that where it's literally trying to spread that across uh, multiple systems and it's, it you got two-phase commit and things like that. Those have already been proven as very complex and problematic, not worth it. So instead, you're going to apply it differently. So now you're going to have you know messages out to these different um, uh, microservices or whatever's in charge of the data integrity and let them control the transaction at that level. Collectively, holistically, all right, that's where you're, what Rob was talking about earlier with that eventual consistency. You're going to have these things be affected, but they're not going to be immediate. And you have to also take that into account of, well, if it's not going to immediate now, any given day, any given hour, sure. It's within milliseconds. Things are committed. You're fine. But what if, since we got things communicating over a network, messaging systems over a network, things like that, you have that delay, you have that immediate problem of you can't go just across a memory line. Now you're going across the network. You have it our induced latency already. And then you get into the uh, cap theorem, right? You get, uh, uh, consistency, availability, and partitioning, the network partitioning, and the partitioning can always happen. What do you do then when your network is severed? And uh, I, I, not in the book, but in a, in a talk that I have that I, I mentioned about, um, um, let's say I, I've got this game that I'm playing on my phone and it's just a word game, not Wordle, but it, it's a different word game, right? And, and I noticed that, well, if I'm off for any way, I'm just away from the cellular connection or away from Wi-Fi or whatever. Well, the, the game during the tournament thinks that I'm number one, I'm first place. Well, I know that's not right. It wasn't that a minute ago. So, but it allows me to keep playing. And then when I get back into range, it syncs up and it says, okay, well, here's your rank. You're actually number 35. And now that it's caught up with this other list. Okay. So it favored availability of the application over consistency. Now, what if I was playing a live poker game? Well, I can't just uh, be disconnected and still play. So in that case, that game is going to favor consistency over availability when network problems happen. So then we take that into consideration. It's also mentioned in the same chapter with decentralizing data. When things happen, how are you going to, what are you going to favor more for your application? It may not be the whole application as a whole. Maybe it's just this section over here, maybe with just the accounts payable part. How should this functionality behave if there's a network problem? What about this part of the, the whole scope of things? And it's a different microservice. How should it behave? It allows you the opportunity. Again, you got the, the separation of, of code, the independent applications, and now you get to choose. How should it behave 
given that we have a network problem, but you also have to take that into account. So does that help? Because I mean, there's, there's a lot more to that, uh, uh, that we do cover in that chapter. So what about testing? Uh, Rob, you had, you had mentioned that we often talk about testing as a, uh, a, a catch-all term for things like unit testing and integration testing and end-to-end testing and acceptance testing and all the things. But if we're decentralizing our application, if we're cutting up the monolith into individual pieces and in, into a distributed suite of applications, how do we go about testing these microservices. Good call. And the interesting thing here is that when we have a distributed system like this, our application is not just that one project, that one solution inside of Visual Studio. So if I do integration tests within my solution, I'm really only proving that my microservice behaves the way my microservice behaves, not that it integrates well with the rest of the system. At that point, what really the only way to be able to fully do integration testing is to spin up the whole suite of microservices. It sounds really scary, but I'm going to propose that we unit test, we do these integration tests in production. Now, not necessarily doing the full purchase path, but let's go find the really hot path associated with our application. If it is an order entry system, then I want to be able to get to the website. I want to be able to get to the product catalog. I want to be able to put something in my cart and I want to be able to check out. Now, maybe this test doesn't include a credit card number and an actual shipping address, but if we can get from the homepage to the checkout screen, then we've proven that probably our system is online. Now let's run that test in production continuously maybe once an hour, maybe once every few minutes. At the point where we can't hit the homepage and get our product into the shopping cart and get to the checkout screen, then we know we have a problem and we need to take corrective action. We can create similar types of integration tests that validate that our critical business processes work across all of our microservices. And let's not do it with deterministic or with data that has side effects that may cause interesting things. Let's not email customers every hour, but let's validate that all of our systems work together. Perhaps we can also run in non-production environments more invasive tests that validate that all of these microservices work together and that we're able to do this checkout process, putting in a mock credit card, going off to our mock square service or our mock um, Twilio service or our mock uh, other service. And that allows us to validate that all of the pieces associated with our application will play together nicely. If I'm deploying a new version of my little microservice, I probably do want to have API tests that validate that the things that I consume behave the way that I expect them to consume but also probably that the public APIs that I expose still have the same meaning as the last time. And that'll help me prove a little bit that my service behaves the way we expect, but it's really those end-to-end tests across the entire application that will validate that all of my microservices play well in concert. And you may 
you're going you're to do unit tests to help prove that two and two is four. You know, maybe you're calculating a tax rate and you're going to have a controlled uh, test where you're putting your inputs in and you're validating your outputs. Great. That's awesome. Okay. You got unit testing and then you're going to move that up, right? And go, how does it play well with others? That integration level testing, that service layer testing. And then you're going to see uh, how about when I have a microservice calling another microservice and during the process of the second one, uh, it dies. Is the first microservice or the monolith, maybe the caller is the point, it, it, does the caller handle that now possible condition? So now we've got something that's dying off. Do have we uh, implemented retry logic? Or do we want to do it in such way that uh, we're not just retrying uh 15 times within five milliseconds, you know, just, you know, cause our own distributed denial to service right there. But then you got maybe exponential back off where I'm going to try it again. All right. I'm going to wait a second. Now let's try it again. I'm going to, I'm going to wait three seconds and allow, because now that now the instance, a new instance came up. Now it's available for another call. Okay. Now it happened again because if we got a call across the network, even that has to be tested and brought in. And now you've got additional code changes that you have to worry about your circuit breakers and your retry logic. Um, you know, what if the thing is just dead? Now, what if you're re re relying on a third party system that you have no control over? You're the caller. Do you have things like circuit breaker um, handling in there where, okay, I'm making a call. It's just not available. I got to do something else. What is that else? That's where circuit breaker pattern comes in into that into that testing realm that you want to consider. I mean, one one of the beautiful things about having distributed a distributed system and microservices that you're going to be able to have multiple teams working on these things. But when it comes to testing them, I feel like this can become a pretty big point of contention because you can all of a sudden you're not really maybe depending on a third party per se, but it's, it's another person's team. And so, um, how, like, maybe we are, maybe we're able to like Rob, you mentioned run those integration tests in production, but maybe there are some things that we can't really do in production, like the full checkout or, you know, putting in that credit card. So we have to have some mocking of, services or something is it your team so like your team owns that is it your team's responsibility to sort of build those mock services that other team other teams can couple with you or is it the consuming client's responsibility to build the the mock to your your interfaces so that they can test that their thing integrates with with your service i can even give them i can even give another little little bit it also may be possible that we're thinking about this to connection to connection and maybe a new paradigm where you're saying, uh, really, this is just happening in an eventual consistency way or we're publishing out an event and then it's just some a matter of someone else. So the integration is different. But yeah, go for it. There's a couple of things and you bring up some really elegant points. How do we validate that my system and your system talk together? You said, well, they're not really third party, but I would argue that they kind of are. We're creating a data product or a service product, and you're consuming it, and you, the client out there, just happens to work for the same company. That's part of the beauty of microservices is being able to let my team and your team grow our products differently. 
Now, the cool part about that is that we can evolve them differently. The bummer part is that eventually we do need to come together and coordinate. Ideally, we're creating these interfaces between our systems ahead of time. We're collaborating on what that user experience should be. And as we talk about C Sharp or .NET, you know, interface has a very specific meaning, and that's not the meaning that I'm using. Rather, what is the API surface that we will consume? Let's design that API surface together, your team and my team, and let's identify that concrete spot where we'll communicate. And yes, it will evolve over time. But once we've identified that experience and refined that experience to be a really elegant way to communicate, then the implementation details of how we'll each consume and publish that content can start to evolve differently. So now who's responsible for the tests of that boundary? Um, Both of us. (laughs) I've seen it done differently in different teams where some teams, the person consuming the service is responsible for mocking out everybody else's service. And I've seen it in other teams where they very specifically say, we're going to publish the service and we're also going to publish the mocks. Now, that does make some technology assumptions, like you're using the same language I am, but it does add some consistency where if I'm going to evolve this service, I'm also going to evolve the mock, and you don't have to discover that I changed the API surface. Ultimately, yeah, it is a process of communication. And to that end, can we create this boundary to be more loosely coupled? What if instead of you calling me over HTTP, I publish an event to a service bus or to RabbitMQ or Mass Transit. In that point, we're still going to have the discussion about how do we define this interface boundary really elegantly. But now I can publish events, and when you're ready to consume them, you can consume them. And we don't have to have this live active connection, and we don't have to have this really stringent validation of our boundary. We can, I can publish things when I'm ready, and you can consume them when your hardware is available. You may be in a condition where you've got two different microservices that need to communicate with each other somehow, but they are managed by two different teams. And my team is on a different deadline and schedule than yours. So what if I need to consume your your, your microservice, but you're at least one, two, maybe three sprints behind? So to Rob's point, yeah, you want to have that collaboration of what does that connection look like? If, if it's not HTTP with an API, well, then it's going to be a message. What should the message look like? What's in the message body? Is there a, a payload format that we're going to stick to that has to have the required elements, et cetera? So there's always going to be that level of communication that must be there. How do you test for that? We do talk about that in the chapter. And uh, with if you're doing an RPC style with a, over HTTP and you're, you're going to do that uh, API call, then you can use a library called PactNet. And so I can, uh, let's say, ma'am, and I'm going to consume a microservice that uh, John Ash is, is creating, his team. Um, we've, we've collaborated where we know what we're going to, uh, as far as what the API is going to look like. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, develop my microservice. I have this call going, but I'm going to use PactNet to, to kind of, in a sense, mock out and receive that call. And then it creates a file. And then, so my test then says, okay, we're going to look at the output of that file. And now, as long as I don't change my code, 
then my tests pass. If I do change my code, well, I rerun my test and I at least go and compare against that file. But now I can give that file to you on for your team and you can write provider tests using that same file that says, are you now, you can have uh, these tests developed in, against that file that says, are you now uh, you know, still compliant to what we agreed on? And then if there's code changes uh, and that can be reran against that file and help validate that. Now, if things do and we agree, well, all right, things are going to change. Well, fine. Rerun the test, recreate a file, and then we have a new baseline. But there is a way of doing that. Are there any other specific topics around microservices or, or in the, the book that we maybe haven't touched on that you want to be sure people are aware of and, and, and maybe do some additional reading or, or learning on their own? Well, one, I definitely say, you know, absolutely go buy the book. I think you're going to really enjoy uh, a lot of the details that we, we put in there and um, you're able to just get started and start writing code. You will have a working uh, examples throughout this thing. Um, as well, don't let this be the final book as far as, because we just, we can't cover every little detail about distributed architecture. And, um, another book that I would highly recommend that is regarding distributed architecture is, and it's also by a press. It's by a friend of ours, Michael Perry called the art of immutable architecture. And it's a, it, he gets into a lot more details as far as how do you think about distributed transactions going across uh, multiple database microservices, et cetera. And, and, and I'm barely touching the surface on that. I would definitely recommend if anybody's interested in doing it, don't underestimate what you need to do to do them well, but get in there and go play but don't be afraid to make the mistakes and, but know that that can happen and it's going to happen. That's all part of that learning process. I agree. One of the things that I think is so exciting about this book is that we're not teaching a technology. We're not teaching you how to use Kubernetes or Docker. We're teaching you how to think about these problems and how to design distributed and efficient systems. And if your monolith is really small and it's working for you, then maybe these patterns aren't necessary for you. But when you reach that level of complexity or scale where you need to be able to break apart your pieces and let them evolve separately, perhaps across separate teams or um, a separate scaling me measurements, then microservices can be a really, really elegant tool to allow you to get to that next level of productivity with your applications. I love being able to share this detail in this book, and I hope that you'll enjoy reading it. Awesome. Uh, speaking of reading it, where are some of the best locations where our listeners can get the book? So we're available on Amazon and uh, as well as a Springer link, which I believe they own a press. Um, so they've uh, just recently moved uh, from a press.com. Uh, so you might be able to start there, but it'll move you to the Springer link website. Um, but it's, um, and from what I've seen on Amazon, it, um, I have seen where if you order it now, you should be able to have it delivered within two or three days. So even though they are print on demand, there's been so many being sold right now that they've got plenty that's uh, on hand right now and available for quick ship. So um, yeah, definitely Amazon, uh, try them out. And, um, and, and we would definitely appreciate the review and let us know what, you know, how is this helping you? 
in, in your journey through microservices, your, in helping your team and helping discussions. And so, yeah, let us know. Awesome. And uh, I'm sure that our listeners, if they haven't already, because we've all had you on before, wanted to follow you, uh, is Twitter still the best place for them to keep up with what you're working on? Or is there, is there better places? Uh, yeah, Twitter is going to be the best way for me. Um, uh, I'll let the other guys speak for themselves, but uh, mine is code with Sean W. Um, that's Sean with S E A N. So um, I have been at times where I will stream me on Twitch with, as code with Sean. Um, I haven't done it recently. I need to get back to it. Uh, but on Twitter, it's code with Sean W. And mine is Twitter as well, Rob underscore Rich. Um, you can also hit me up at robrich.org where I'll, ha- I'll post a link to this podcast. And Twitter works for me well. I'm M Groves, is G-R-O-V-E-S on Twitter. All right, guys. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us this evening. Matt, Rob, Sean, uh, this has been an absolute blast. And my copy of Pro Microservices in .NET 6 is on its way to my house as well. And hopefully it is on the way to your house as well, dear listener. So with that, we will say good night. With us today is Sean Whitesell, Matt Groves, and Rob Richardson. Sean is the Microsoft MVP, ASP Insider, Technical Reviewer, and Cloud Architect at TokenX. Matt is the Microsoft MVP, a guy who loves to code and get involved in the developer community. And Rob is a Microsoft MVP, Docker Captain, and a friend of Redgate. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.